0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. In late February, a letter was delivered to President Biden requesting an executive order protecting beaver on federally managed public lands. According to co-author Adam Bronstein, in order to fully realize the wide array of social, ecological, and economic benefits that beavers provide to human and wild communities, The federal government must take bold and decisive action. This executive order would provide clear direction and is needed because state wildlife agencies are too narrowly focused on the interests of hunters and trappers, leading to their continued failure to protect this critical keystone species. Anxieties are high and cut across state boundaries, and addressing them requires a national strategy rather than a piecemeal approach. Co-authors Adam Bronstein and Suzanne Fowdy are my guests today. Be sure to stay tuned for a wonderful vision of what could unfold for wildlife and wildlands recovery if they're successful. So thank you both for being here. I, I am curious. I heard that you guys haven't known each other and worked on this issue for very long together. Can you tell us the story of how you met?
1: Adam and I were introduced by a mutual colleague and friend of ours. Who felt that it would be a good connection given that Adam works for Western Watersheds Project and I'm retired forest service hydrologist, soil specialist and have spent the last and I've lived for the last 20 years in Baker County, which is the dry part of Oregon. And Adam was going to be spending a lot more time in this area in eastern Oregon. And so it was a great introduction. And. It was still the pandemic. We met in July of 2022. We sat outside under a tree, socially distanced. And we talked about grazing and we talked about land use issues and things like that. And in the process, it drifted to beavers. And I was at that moment, I had just come off my fifth effort, working with some scientists and some economists with nonprofit groups to try in Oregon to change beaver management and give beavers protection on federally managed public lands as a climate change, biodiversity response. And they had all been unsuccessful. There had been four that had involved going before the Oregon Fish and Wildlife Commission and one that had been an effort at the state legislature. And that House bill never even got a hearing. So I was pretty frustrated. I was laying it out for Adam and he was very patient in listening to me process my most current level of frustration. And at the end, he said, what do you think the next step is? And I responded, we need an executive order. We'll never get it to the states. They're too wedded to their user groups. And the scale of the issue is bigger than the state. And so we need a big, broad idea. And at that point, we talked a little bit more about it. And then we moved on. And then we went our separate ways. And a week or two later, I get a call from Adam. And he says, I think we should do it. And I was very caught off guard. I didn't really think it would go anywhere. And yet at that moment, it went from being just an idea that I had come to realize to a real possibility. And I'm going to turn it then over to Adam.
2: Thanks for that intro, Suzanne. And it certainly was a pleasure meeting you last summer, getting to hear your concerns. And I could really tell by the way you were talking how passionate you are about Beaver and how frustrated you were with just slamming your head against the wall and all the others in the state who have Tried to get reforms through, and uh, just the the level of frustration really got to me. I guess Jack, we were talking a bit about how things, uh, how this isn't the '70s and the '80s anymore, and we have to be creative and think of new ways uh, to get the work done. And uh, a lot of these collaborative processes today, processes uh, just aren't effective, and they end up getting captured by, in this case, the hunting and and trapping interests and the state. Fish and Game Commission here in Oregon. And quite frankly, I'm pretty fed up with it and uh, we need to be speaking loudly and boldly and uh, with conviction and resolve. And uh, this just felt like a really good issue to, to dive deep on and to, to start to tackle. And Suzanne just felt like the right partner to see this through. So here we are today having delivered the letter and we've got a nice coalition that's forming and we're gonna, we're gonna keep pressing forward.
0: Before we get to the details of the letter, I want to back up a little bit and talk about, let's frame this. What levels of persecution are beaver under on public lands? How are they not being protected?
2: Beaver are susceptible to hunting and trapping in most states across the country. And for this particular executive order, we're just focusing on federal public lands for protections. We also have requests for money to allocate to help home private landowners to coexist with beaver. But right in most states, there are trapping and hunting seasons for beaver. Most do not have quotas. Uh, the seasons are very long. And I'll pass it over to Suzanne. She can maybe talk about like when the trapping seasons are and how that's a problem for, for family structure and dynamics.
1: Yes, my time working on the issue in Oregon has really allowed me to become pretty informed. So trapping can take place anywhere between four months to year long. But the goal is to have it part of it overlap in the winter because that's when the pelts are best. This is also the breeding and the pregnancy season. And so because trapping is non-indiscriminate, so unlike hunting in which you have a target species and you have a very, if it's a doe season, you don't go after a buck. You can't make that distinction when you're trapping. You lay the trap down and whatever steps into it is caught. So when you lay down traps during the winter, which is ideally the most protected time for beavers because they're in their lodges, they're oftentimes under the ice, they've stored their food, and they may occasionally come up, but it's largely a protected time when it comes to wild predation. And now you have traps being set out and so you end up capturing and killing these beavers, and you might take the pregnant mom. You might take the adult male, the dad. You might take the two-year-old kit that is just about ready in the next season to disperse and begin to move and find new habitat and start their own family. And as a result, you are constantly setting back this ability of beaver populations to expand in numbers and to expand their distributions. In Oregon, right now, the state agency only manages on public land. It used to manage private and public, but now it only manages on public lands. And the numbers that are coming off public lands are around 1,000 beavers in Oregon. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but when your populations are already very low, it has a huge impact. And again, because you can't determine what you're taking. You have no idea of what you're actually doing. And then the last bit is you could take out the entire colony in a single trapping season. And that means the dams that have been built and the restoration that is beginning will begin to unravel again. So it's really critical to protect them in these areas that are so important for biodiversity and for the water.
0: As a fanatic and reader of the science around beavers and their outsized role In restoration and rewilding, I find it shocking that they're still allowed to be trapped anywhere, anyhow, for any reason whatsoever. In this late stage in human history, where we're really on the cusp of so many things, taking out one of the core builders of wildness, it blows my mind. And it makes me very angry that we're even having to have this discussion about public lands, at least how they're treated on federal public lands. But You guys have the beginning of a solution here. We should talk about that. What's this letter to Biden all about? What is the intent? Let's go a little deeper into that.
1: So the request of President Biden is for an executive order. And why an executive order versus states? Oregon taught me, and Adam has seen it in other areas, and you have too, is that when you work with state wildlife agencies, they have a very particular focus. And that focus tends to be on specific animals for specific groups. What we needed was something that transcends state boundaries and moves beyond these tiny user groups with their huge outsized influence. Wildfire passes state lines, drought passes state lines, streams with poor water quality or dying fish cross state lines. And so the request to Biden for an executive order is to really take very direct, clear and bold leadership that says, Beavers are important as a nature-based solution. What they will do is create all these wetlands, and these wetlands will, in turn, capture and store carbon, which, surprisingly and interestingly enough in the inflation reduction act, is a big deal. This idea of human-constructed technologies to capture and store carbon. But what we're talking about is a nature-based one. There are hundreds of thousands of miles of streams that are damaged, and the potential to generate millions of hectares of wetlands. And this means improved flood control, improved conditions during drought, and the list just goes on and on. But that can only happen if the beavers are protected and allowed to expand. So what we're trying to do is elevate the the importance of beaver to a national level and say, this ties into so much what the Biden administration is doing, and it is So essential. Water is so essential for life on this planet. And everywhere in the United States is finding themselves challenged either too much water or not enough water. Or in the case of wildfire, the systems are so damaged that instead of having wetlands that create local safe zones, the fires are burning right up to the edge of the street. So we're asking for let's get serious about climate change and use one of our wild neighbors.
2: I think it's very telling that we had to go to this extent to write a letter to the president to get beavers protected. Why should we have to go to that length? Why can't state fish and game agencies and commissions look beyond their very narrow user groups and consider the wider benefits and the societal need and wildlife are really there for all of us. But they're also there for themselves. Of course, they have intrinsic value and wildness is very important. But in Oregon, we figure there are about 200 beaver trappers or so, and they just have this outsized impact on the populations and hunting and trapping of beaver is the only thing that we can really control and we should be. Take him out seriously and a responsibility and really looking at the issue as this larger need for societal good and change. And this is something to rally around and beavers much like wolves are keystone species they provide so many benefits that we lay out in our letter and we really need to be thinking differently about wildlife management and this is just the perfect test case really to to try to get the message out and really plead with our government officials that it's time to change
0: Some hunting and some angling associations are opposed to ending the trapping and hunting of beavers, despite the benefits you guys have laid out here. And that doesn't, to me, make any sense, but I'm sure somewhere somebody thinks it makes perfect sense. I don't understand it. Can you explain why those groups wouldn't be in favor of ending the trapping and hunting?
2: Susanna and I were talking about this at length yesterday, and we've had this conversation quite a bit. And... It it does start to make sense when you look at the broader political landscape right now and how divisive everything is. And, but you make a really good point, Jack. And we've discussed this too, that beavers should not be as controversial as let's say wolves or grizzly bears. Beavers don't attack calves or sheep. (laughs) They actually help ranchers and they help all of us. And it's just this really unfortunate fall back to the slippery slope and the fear mongering that if they take away your rights to trap beaver, then they're going to get rid of all trapping. And then they're going to get rid of all of hunting. And then they're going to get rid of all of your guns. And then they're going to steal your firstborn and then on and on. And this does not represent the views of the greater hunting and angling community. I am convinced of that. As a hunter and angler myself, I want to see beaver on the landscape providing more habitat for the game species that I go out and hunt and enjoy hunting. And we see increased mammalian use in in these areas. We see more waterfowl. We see more fish. So these are all really great benefits that I think this community should be really championing and advocating for. I don't feel like these really extreme Folks out there who are purporting to represent the community are doing anybody a favor, including themselves. If we actually want to keep hunting and angling, then we can't, we, we can't be this extreme. These folks cannot represent us. If they actually want to protect these rights, this is not the way to go about it. It's very detrimental, counterproductive.
1: In addition to the hunting and trapping opposition, which Adam really explained, is makes zero sense when you really think about it, if you are thinking about it from an intellectual standpoint. But as Adam pointed out, this is not an intellectual decision as much as they might want to think it is. Because the science and the economics are overwhelmingly in our favor, as is just the need. Who doesn't need water? Who doesn't drink it every day? What farmer, what rancher does not want to have in the middle of a drought there to be abundant water for their fields for their livestock what community doesn't want to be able to turn on their tap and have water what's interesting to me is not only are hunting and some angling groups opposed but the farm bureau is opposed at least it was in oregon so we when we were making these efforts to change to provide protections for beaver on federally managed public lands oregon was in had two years of massive droughts so we're doing this effort in the midst of massive drought and large wildfires We're doing it when the Klamath Basin is water crisis is heating up and when fish literally are showing up dead because the streams are so choked with the ash from the fires. And we still can't get through. And the Farm Bureau is like coming out in opposition. And you have to ask yourself what's going on? Who is the Farm Bureau benefiting when they are opposing a condition that would improve situation upstream for their downstream users? And I don't know what farmer is okay with in the midst of a drought, having a dry stream. So I think that even farmers and ranchers need to ask their leadership, are you really representing our best interest? We need this water. They're talking federally managed public lands. They are talking about, they're not saying anything about our private land. You need to be on board with this. And so I think that is really important. And then I guess as a non-hunter and angler, I don't get why you're not on board. I don't know why it's okay to have dead fish and sick fish and wildlife that is just looking malnourished. So it's a mystery.
2: There's been a right-wing capture of many of these groups that represent hunters and anglers, specifically hunters out there. And it's just used as a political ploy to... Just get people riled up and again, it's very counterproductive and I don't think it represents the vast majority of hunters and anglers out there. So I think people just need to be aware of this capture and look for other outlets if they exist and start talking about these benefits with all of your friends and your colleagues and your buddies who who want to see the kind of change out there that we're talking about.
1: You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support.
0: I totally agree on the capture thing. At the end of the day, they're holding the gavels in all of these wildlife boards and commissions, and they're keeping certain people out that are a threat to them, like scientists and people who actually know what's going on other than just game species. And And a lot of people that I know don't necessarily relish the idea of politics, but a way was cleared for those extremists that you talk about, Adam, to get into power, to get into positions of power. In a lot of cases, there were no struggles at all. There were no fights. They just walked right in comparatively. And they're also making it, once they get in power, to make it very difficult for a petition campaign. Or a protest or anything like that used to work really well, at least a lot better than it does now to work now. So those old tools that we used to use are, they're finding it easier and easier to ignore them. So I love the spirit of writing directly to the president and demanding an EO, an executive order, (laughs) because that's new, fresh and empirically we've tested everything else. And it's worked as well as it has to get us to where we are today, which we're all dissatisfied with. So let's try new stuff, right?
2: Yeah, let's try new stuff. Let's start thinking outside the box. There's actually, there've been two periods of time where beaver hunting and trapping was closed in Oregon. And one of those times extended just onto public lands and Suzanne could talk more about the history there, but we really do need to be looking outside of the box this letter is being widely distributed and people are talking about it. We have, we've, had feedback from rural county commissioners that they're actually starting to circulate this letter and to discuss all of the benefits that beaver bring that so many people know about. And many ranchers are also welcoming beavers back onto their private lands. So I think there's more support out there than the detractors would want us to all believe.
1: And I'm going to just provide that little bit of history that Adam suggested when it came to Oregon, because I think it's particularly interesting. I live in eastern Oregon where it's dry. And there were the very first closure that took place in Oregon is in 1893. And it starts in my county and in Malheur County. These are two very dry counties. And they those closures were at the request of the ranchers. They were having some real challenges with water. They understood what beaver could do, and they asked for their protections. And then in 1899, those protections go statewide. And they keep, things are kept closed until 1917, almost 20 years. Two counties are opened. And then in 1923, all of the private lands are opened. What's important here is that the public lands stay closed. There, The private, it's opened again on private lands because now the beaver are moving into the ditches and they're cutting apple trees and things like that. But there was still this recognition that it was really essential to keep beavers up on those public lands because that's the source of the water. And there was a lot of soil erosion benefits as well. When, the tra- when it's open again, the trapping is so swift that by 1932, the state is closed again. That's how fast the trappers were able to move in and make a difference. So it's closed for another 20 years. And then the beaver population expands. And this time, again, there is a decision to reopen. For a while, the state attempted to do their own sort of response to trapping. Uh, But that wasn't enough. So they reopened. And again, a huge, the numbers are like 12,000, 10,000 beavers that are coming off. And then we get to the modern day, and it's sometime after 1960, which is when this publication ended, you end up opening National Forest as well. And by the 1950s, you now have BLM. And so you now have a much broader opening. And there are some small closures in the state of Oregon, but only one of them has any studies. And it shows that when you close, beavers expand and there's all these benefits. And the state constantly says, we have all these closures, but some of them are like one stream, all the tributaries are open and the land base is open. That's not a closure. And also the state has done no science. So the only place where there's science says it's good. And then there is a there is an array of science out there that says, if you close trapping, there is a very expected, predictable response. Numbers go up, habitat goes up.
0: Listeners in the East hear us talk an awful lot as if all we are concerned with is the West and because most of the public lands are the vast majority are in the West, but we're not just talking about a Western issue. If an executive order was put into place, which you guys have written this letter for, how would it benefit both East and West of the Mississippi River watershed, given that the two regions have different struggles with water, too too little versus too
1: much? The benefits, the visual tangible benefits will immediately be seen in the West because that's where the bulk, as you pointed out, of the public lands are. So it's our streams in the West that are going to start to see recovery. The amount of public lands in the east of the Mississippi is just less, but beaver will also be able to provide benefits there. The real value, one of the real values has to comes from the place that, as these expansions take place in the West, on public lands, where there are sometimes some conflicts, say, between infrastructure and beavers. One of the things we talk about in the letter is that the federal government will will provide funding to help deal with, to put into place coexistence strategies. So if you live east of the Mississippi and you are concerned about flooding, and there is, in our letter, there is a great short webinar on the benefits of beaver-created wetlands to reduce flooding downstream. What it means is it allows you as a private citizen, as a county, as a state, in terms of public lands, is to look to the West and say, do those things work? What are the changes that they're seeing? What are the stream gauges that maybe the U.S. Geological Survey is now monitoring? What are they showing? And as wow, you don't have those public lands but we have state lands or county lands or private landowners who are on board and we can take advantage of everything that becomes visible in the West and we can use those coexistence strategies because in the East, there will be more conflicts, but we can use those coexistence strategies and we can begin to find those places where it is appropriate for wetlands to show up. And so it is this, what's going on in the West? How does it work? where do we have places in the east that we can get these beaver back in and as a result have that water storage that benefits the west during the dry years, have that water storage decrease our flood impacts because we just oftentimes have so much water.
2: The east coast is a lot wetter than the west coast and they do experience quite a bit of flooding, less so drought. Of course, we get all the extremes here on the west coast, but I'm thinking back to Vermont quite a few years ago now, but they have large hurricane events, flooding, and there's quite a bit of national forest in Vermont, and if we could get beaver populations stable there, they would really help mitigate some of these really large flooding events. Also, where they're doing Atlantic salmon reintroductions or trying to help brook trout. These, these species co-evolved with beavers and we can help out fish populations back east too. So we're very focused on the West Coast, but I'm originally from the East Coast and grew up near the Adirondack Mountains and really miss it back there. But uh, we're certainly not leaving out the East Coast. And as Suzanne mentioned, the smaller forest areas could provide a really good test case and a place for people to go and visit and see the sort of benefits that could be provided elsewhere, like on state lands and in private lands.
0: Yeah. And I think the Eastern discussion, because we're not no pun, but not putting out so many fires <laughs> with beavers with the discussion. And everything is just it seems more like an emergency out west. It leaves room, maybe, for the discussion of just the moral and ethical, self-willed discussion. They deserve to be there, and we don't deserve to take a species out because it messes up some old way of thinking about how we use the land
1: when we talk about emergencies, I think that if you were to visit with people on the east of the Mississippi who are dealing with repeated flooding, they would probably disagree with you on that. Everybody's experiencing the emergency. They're experiencing it in very different ways. And one of the values of this is that this massive amount of carbon sequestration that's going to take place will help everybody. And then this opportunity for the local forest that Adam talked about on the east, in the east of the Mississippi, to give those folks to say, yeah, there's some other possibilities here. We're going to have to take a slightly different strategy when it comes to beaver because we don't have the big public lands, but we know it works. We can make it work too. So the emergency is everywhere. We are experiencing the emergency differently depending on our region. Good point. Yeah, I was
2: gonna say when we think of the East Coast. It's been colonized for so long and we've lost so much of our wildlands. Fortunately, we do have some wilderness areas back east, but they're very small. And beaver really represents one of the best opportunities to rewild the east. We think about all the national forest lands that we do have back there that are outside of designated wilderness and all the benefits that we can bring to those ecosystems it's just a great way to, to really bring the wilderness back home to the east coast i can't really think of a better way than beavers
0: let's bring it home now and get both of your perspectives on what you lay awake or wake up in the morning dreaming about what does the landscape anywhere in the country or you can go big and do the country as a whole what's it look like when we get what we should for beavers, protections, and respect for what beavers are and what they do.
1: Here's the image that I imagine, because I live in a dry landscape that gets wildfire. A wildfire has just raged through public lands. The ground is crisp, and it's dry, and it's ashfield. And a rancher has been out there cutting fences because their cows are out of public lands, and they, are, they know they're on the pasture, but the pastures beg. And the question that they are going to be struggling with as they walk that ground is how many are dead, how many are burned, how many are dying because their lungs are scalded. And he or she comes over the edge and there's this enormous beaver dam created wetland. It's huge. And they look down in it and what do they see? They see a bunch of their cows standing there. They're doing just fine. I imagine what it feels like to see that story. I imagine what it feels like to see salmon numbers on the East and the West Coast start to rise dramatically because suddenly there are beaver ponds that the juvenile coho salmon require for overwintering. I see us suddenly beginning to honor our moral and obligation to the tribes to restore this species and that the numbers are climbing rapidly, not a hundred, a thousand, but thousands as we restore the habitat they need. I imagine what it's like for a farmer to have elevated water tables now because beaver are, they've maybe allowed them to coexist on their land and they go into a drought and their crops are still good. I imagine what it feels like to be a town that isn't of a wildfire and know that there are all these wetlands out there, all these natural fire breaks that are attempting to slow and alter the path of this fire. I imagine what it feels like to have a big storm event on the east side of the Mississippi and to have the people downstream piling sandbags, but having those wetlands up there drop the peak so much that the river doesn't jump the banks. Those are the kinds of things that I know are possible if we get beaver back on this landscape.
2: I think about our biodiversity crisis right now. And how vital riparian areas are to so many species. Forget the exact number, but something like 80% of species in the West depend at least in some part on riparian areas for their life. And if we can get these areas expanded, I just think it would be such an inspiration to us as humans and an act of humility to be able to step back and really let nature to start taking her course again. And really trusting in nature that we can benefit by not manipulating and managing and trying to change every last thing and just regaining the spirit of wildness that we've lost so i just envision big green zones in the deserts and newly inundated and flooded forests and Lights and a new hope of rewilding ourselves and the natural world that we've just treated so poorly for so long.
1: The other piece is is about us re engaging. Are youth re engaging? Are youth re engaging in helping beaver expand? Are youth re engaging in knowing that the tasks that they are taking to try to create a different future is being aided by things that we and others are doing to restore the natural landscape? It's about getting families out on the landscape rediscovering the magic and helping and planting and building things like beaver dam analogs, which we haven't talked about, but which can help beavers in some cases where the streams are really badly damaged. It's fun. Let's not forget that changing the trajectory of this climate change crisis can be fun and inspiring. And we have kids out there who are feeling pretty hopeless. We have young adults and we have adults as well, like Adam and I and you who are really struggling. With the despair, we can change it. And that transformation and getting kids out of cities, onto these lands, and being part of the recovery process is something that I really imagine as part of our future.
0: There is an extra credit section at the end of every single podcast at rewilding.org slash POD. And at the bottom of the podcast, check out everything that Suzanne and Adam have provided us today to take action to further our education on the importance of beavers and everything that they bring to the landscape. And any closing thoughts from either of you about this really important topic?
2: Yeah, it just seems so monumental and so impossible to, to have made such a large request, but at the same time, it just feels right. Like this is what we need to be doing right now. We have to Start asking for really big things. And it just gives me hope working with Suzanne and clawing out of our despair and doing something that just feels good and that so many people are excited about. And Jack, I really appreciate your program and for having us on.
1: Okay. So here is my closing thoughts. And in part, they're going to be directed to people who are like me, they're retirees or they're scientists. But some of these will apply to all of us. And they're going to be somewhat unusual. First of all, we have to stop being timid. And it's what Adam said. We've got to be bold. We the people have power, privilege, and with that comes responsibility. If you use public lands, then you need to engage. If you drink water, you need to engage. So here are some specifics. Read the letter that we sent to President Biden and that many people signed on to and watch the short videos. These are important because they will help you understand why protecting beavers matter and they will help you not be misled by those who will tell you it doesn't matter. Work to get beavers protected. Tell your county commissioners, your state and federal representatives that beavers need to be protected. Put beavers on their radar screen. The other thing, too, is I recommend that you challenge the agencies. If you're in a situation, ask for their data. Ask for the sources, their statements that they're making. Put them on the spot. Now, these next ones are about what we can do outside of the beaver thing, but which really anticipate and help what the beavers do. We've got to cut our emissions. It doesn't matter how many wetlands we have if we're still pumping a bunch of carbon into the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases. We need to cut our personal carbon footprint. So, how are we going to do that? Check your wallet. If you have a JP Chase, a JP Morgan Chase, Citibank, Wells Fargo, or Bank of American credit card, get rid of it. These are massive fossil fuel banks. They want us to get hooked. They offer us points. They offer us low interest, but we have to basically unhook ourselves and then tell them why. For those of us who love to fly and travel, we need to cut our recreational flying. It's just not fair to the rest of the world. And we need to save those plane trips for those times when it's really important. A family emergency, a really special family event. We've got to be responsible. We, as scientists, which is what I am, is we've got to rethink our conferences. Yes, they keep us engaged, learning, and feeling relevant. But flying in a time of climate change is just ethically wrong. Come on, we're scientists. We can find a way around this. And finally, we have to listen to our youth. They get it way better than we do. And we've got to figure out how to help them to ask what they need and how to help them engaged. And to my fellow retirees, I know we thought these were going to be the golden years, but we have something you need to offer. And lots of groups need our time and skill. We need to reach across the generation. We need to reimagine what our retirement means. And we need to unleash our collective economic, and social power to create a different future. That's what we need to do.
0: Adam, Suzanne, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This is definitely one of my favorites. And I hope to have you guys <laughs> back after the executive order has been issued for a massive Rewilding Earth podcast celebration to come. Woo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you stomach, Jack. Jack.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.